Hello and welcome back, Axapod listeners. Welcome to day, I don't know what day it is anymore, of this social distancing and quarantining. Uh, I don't know about you all, but uh, I'm going a little crazy over here. But uh, I'm glad that I have this microphone and this podcast as an outlet to annoy you all instead of annoying my family. So thanks for being there. This week we had a great talk with John Wackman good friend and a partner of mine. He's at Nyland Johnson Law Firm. We do a lot of work together in the micromobility space and product liability space, but he's also just a really smart guy and good attorney and a good litigator. So he's pretty cued into, you know, what clients are asking about and what uh, his thoughts are and analysis is with regard to COVID-19. So We talked a little bit about the legal and insurance landscape here as kind of a public service announcement. So we hope you listen. We hope you enjoy the show. Reach out to me with any questions you have. Free advice. Uh, I definitely want to hear from you what what questions you have, what's going on with your business, or how, how you might be affected by the, the virus. Uh, we, we tried to address all the insurance, you know, potential angles that, that people have been discussing. We, we hope there's more to come from Congress and from people that might be able to mobilize some insurance dollars. Uh, TRIA was one of those potentials that we talked about in this podcast. So enjoy, rate, and review us if you can. Thanks a lot. All right, welcome back to Acts of Pod, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Coronavirus, COVID nineteen, day seven or whatever it is right now. I want to welcome my guest, John Wackman of Nyland Johnson. John, how are you today? Are you social distancing? I am social distancing at my home, working in my dining room office. So it's uh, certainly different times. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm in the bunker, but uh, we decided to practice our own social distancing here on Axapod. I didn't want to expose John to my three young kids and any potential of transmitting transmitting the virus to you and your family so we're uh, here we are remotely uh, remotely working on this today we John and I thought we'd just give a little uh, maybe public service announcement because I know there's a lot of questions on covid-19 from a risk management insurance and legal perspective we thought that we'd do our best to kind of fill you in on what we know about and what uh, is going on in the landscape right now from an insurance and legal perspective. John, what are you, uh, what are you seeing from your side of things these days? Well, the biggest uh, thing that you're noticing initially was people who had, say, contracts to you know, have a conference or something where you had a hotel rooms uh, booked was uh, using the either impossibility or force majeure clauses, which are basically exceptional circumstances, which have always been in contracts, uh, but have just really never come into play. That's just something that you, you put in in case it happens to be a war or other circumstances. But with, with this pandemic, they have, you know, taken on a life and obviously have a lot of merit. Initially, um, many in the hospitality interest pushed back because, you know, sort of before we got to the point we're at now was, well, no, I mean, there's no actual restrictions. You can come and so forth, but that's evolved quickly like everything else. And now those impossibility or force mature 
arguments have lots of merit. You know, you can't actually have a conference and things like that. Yeah, interesting. And uh, I'm going to get into some of the kind of the insurance angles that people are looking at exploring coverage. But I think, you know, event cancellation coverage, which is not always purchased, may be one of the few where you could actually find some coverage, especially if you bought the policy before 2020. I don't know if you've seen any of that yet, John, you know, looking into that for clients. We have, we have a, we're part of one organization that did have that coverage, so they were able to, to recover on, um, through, that, through a clause of that type you know, when they had to cancel something. Yeah, if you purchased it before 2020 and there's a policy form in the event cancellation space, it's called all cause. It can be pretty broad and the potential to endorse a policy to have coverage for communicable diseases. It was there before 2020. Now, I think after COVID-19 started gaining some traction in China, that carriers were in the beginning, in the early parts of 2020, much more reluctant to put that coverage in there. So you probably don't have it if you had a renewal in 2020. But if you had one beforehand and and you had a large event cancellation exposure, you know, you might have had it if if you were taking the proper precautions there. Um, So hopefully, hopefully that can work out for some people. John, what is the, I mean, what is the status of the court system today? I mean, is this business as usual? No, it's, it's exactly the opposite. So what, you know, we, I've got cases sort of all around the country, and what you're seeing pretty consistently is dictates from uh, the court saying we are not going to have any trials because you need, you need to have social distancing, so, so there will be no jury trials. There could be court trials, but even those are being put on hold. So courts are sort of stepping in and saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to take a break here. We're going to put everything on hold for 30 days, extend all the deadlines in cases 30 days. I get uh, printouts of new case filings in um, various jurisdictions every day, and, you know, usually there's, I you know, maybe... 30, 40 cases filed, and now there's two or three. So everything's either getting closed, delayed, or postponed. And so attorneys are, tend to be easier to work with on that just because we're all in the same boat, and the courts are obviously open to any you know agreement by the parties to push things off until sort of we figure out how things are going to proceed and how the virus is going to happen across the country. Uh, that- Got me thinking about something that's probably completely off topic, but it just popped into my head for criminal cases and arraignments and hearings and, and, and that sort of thing. How, how is the criminal justice system handling that? Do you, do you have any idea? Well, from what I've been able to pick up, I mean, there are, uh, that's a good point. I mean, there are uh, laws, there's speedy jury trial requirements for criminal proceedings. Now, criminals can waive them. Uh, but they have a right to be tried within a certain period of time. But the courts are putting in extraordinary measures saying we can't do that right now and sort of putting that on hold. And so I haven't seen anybody challenge that. I don't think a challenge would be successful given everything that's happening. But, you know, those cases, criminal cases uh, in the court systems do get priorities because of the uh, speedy jury trial requirements. Uh, but even those are being set aside and there's, you know, you just can't, you can't bring in jurors. Yeah, I guess that begs the question, or uh, I wonder how the prison and jail system are operating if 
you know, you got a bunch of people that are potentially uh, coming in with no arraignment or, you know, no no way to uh, expedite a release and that sort of thing. Well, and, I, and even, you know, I, I don't know, you know, how they're keeping social distancing within the prison system. No, obviously they're not, you know, they're just exposed to each other, but, you know, people come in from the outside, guards and whatnot. And so if you've got uh, the virus in the prison system, you'd think it would sweep right through. Um, yeah, I... I heard that uh, Rikers had their first case or two and uh, already have reported a number of inmates not feeling well. So we'll see what happens there. It's going to be the whole population pretty quickly. And, and, you know, they just have limits on how to separate each other. So Right. They'll go from a prison to an infirmary pretty quickly. Yes. I don't know how the impacts, you know, exactly on the insurance end of things um, is... You know, obviously a lot of questions from employers, you know, kind of what should we be doing? What can we do? I mean, they, they have both employees who are sick, but they also they have their business implications of, you know, business is, is way down for many people. So, you know, what about layoffs? What about reducing compensation? How, how do we do things like this? How does the FMLA uh, situation work? And there's you know, changes on, a, on sort of a daily basis, extending FMLA or sick leave requirements. And so it's it's a lot for any employer to keep up with. So there's we get lots of questions at our firm about, you know, how, how do you handle this from an employment perspective? And we're obviously at Christensen Group getting a lot of questions as well. I'll try to address some of those right now. And obviously this is not insurance advice, but just a little bit of a public service announcement here, seeing if we can kind of all try to weed our way through this. But yeah, there are definitely a number of areas where people are potentially exposed here. The most logical being, you know, business interruption. So your standard business interruption policy is, you know, usually adjacent or linked to the property policy where there has to be a direct physical damage by a covered loss for the business interruption policy to kick in. So on the the face of it, on the merits, right there. I mean, there's there's not a lot of wiggle room for a virus to trigger that policy. Now, there could be extenuating circumstances where where it could, but in general, we're not seeing a lot of success with the business interruption side of things. And then you know, that kind of trickles down into this civil authority mechanism within an insurance policy, which essentially says civil authority allows for business interruption when a direct physical loss occurs to someone else's property within a mile of the insured's property, preventing access to the insured's property. Even in the event that, you know, a government restricts access to a road and that somehow, you know, reduces your business income, there's still not a direct physical damage by a covered loss. There's a lot of pressure, I think, on the insurance industry by government and others in the community to, to cover some of these losses. But, I mean, the language and the contracts are, are pretty clear. John, I, I mean, I don't know if you have any kind of in, added insight there, but that's that's kind of what I'm seeing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think people are exploring all of their options is what I understand and from talking to people, but they also are arriving at basically the conclusion you just gave, which is it's not covered. So they're just going to have to deal with that, and it's really not the type of situation that would be covered. So 
I mean, they're trying, but they, I think they understand. I don't see any real angst and, uh, about it. It's just, a, let, let's see if we have any coverage, and okay, we don't, let's move on. Right. And then, you know, you kind of weed through all of that. And still, at the end of the day, in most of these property policies, there's a exclusion for virus, micro microorganisms, bacteria that induces disease or illness. So you still have that to deal with, which is pretty prominent. Now, I have heard, and I'm not going to, I won't name any names. I have heard of a couple property carriers out there that may have included communicable disease in their property form. Now, I would think that that would be a big problem for those insurers, <laughs> especially, you know, having to pay out. Obviously, you still have the the language for direct physical damage by a covered loss. But still, I mean, you're you're opening yourself up to a big, big number of claims, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, and, and I'm also seeing employers who are, you know, when you're starting to invoke sort of uh, reductions in pay or those sorts of things, you know, that, that then triggers for them the you know, potential of, of discrimination claims and uh, discrimination, co you know, coverage for those claims. So, you know, I mean, you know, our advice is, you know, you got to do things like you always do. You can't do it based on any uh, protected class. If you're going to do a reduction in pay, you do it across the board. If you're, you know, if you're going to do a reduction in force, you do it based on reasons other than any uh, class-based reason. It's because of a business need, and so you don't maybe you don't need a particular segment of your business because it's it can't function right now. That kind of stuff. So, uh, but that's certainly, you know, I, I would expect when this is sort of quiets down you will see those kinds of claims that somebody lost their job and they're going to make a discrimination claim. So I think there might be an uptick in those kind of claims going forward. I would agree. That kind of brings into the discussion of just general safety processes and, and actually work comp. Now, work comp is one area where the coverage could exist. However, I'm guessing it, would, it gets pretty gray just because you would have to prove somehow that there is a you know, the, the disease was contracted during the course of your employment. But if there was some sort of mass infection in a workplace, you know, that might be that might be a different story. If it was a, a one-off situation, it might be more difficult. I don't, I don't know what you think about that, John. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I mean, I think if you have, I mean, if you clearly got it at work, then I think you have a, there's an opportunity to bring a claim like that. Um, you know, just like any other um, injury or, or thing that can happen at work. I mean, I think there's going to be a problem with proof, uh, but if you've got a whole bunch of your coworkers all have the same thing and, and, and didn't seem to get it elsewhere, then you probably can make the case. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is, is, you know, the issue of how do you deal with employees who don't just don't want to work at your facility. I mean, a lot of a lot of employers obviously are, are trying to institute work from home situations, but there are some things that need to happen at the place of employment. But then if you got somebody who says, "Hey, I'm not, I'm really not comfortable." I mean, all the guidance is to uh, social distance, and I don't want to be there. How how do you deal with that? I mean, I think it's a super tricky issue, particularly given everything that's going on for an employer to say, well, I don't care, you got to be here. I mean, I mean, I, I think that would be a challenge just because it's, um, you know, it's such unusual circumstances and unusual times. So trying to find, I mean, the employers that I've 
talked to are trying to find the right balance. How, how do we keep our business live and also support our employees? I think, you know, that's the driving force of everyone. And I think, you know, I think everyone's trying to get to the right answer. It's just um, we are in unusual times and there aren't easy answers because we haven't seen this before. Yeah, and this work from home scenario, I'm sure, brings up a lot of other uh exposures and a lot of other issues too. I mean, I guess cyber liability being a big potential exposure with so many people probably not having access to a VPN or Citrix or or anything like that. I mean, they're they're using their home network, presumably access pretty confidential data. I mean, some people will have VPN access, but yeah, I mean, that's all sorts of stuff. And, and, you know, businesses are trying to, you know, people have got traditional work at home. You're trying to, try to give them uh, tools to work at home and systems, and it's, it's all new and different. And, and, you know, I mean, it's it's a challenge for all of us to try to learn how to do this, including uh, you and I doing this uh, podcast remotely. So this is all a new learning for us. Interesting. There's a couple kind of pushes out there right now to get, the insurance industry involved from a legislative perspective. There's a committee in New Jersey. I don't know if you've read about this, John. There's a committee in New Jersey that is petitioning the state legislature to cover business losses up to the policy limits for the virus. I don't know if that goes anywhere just because of what we just talked about. It's Then you're just, all you're doing is transferring a bad balance sheet to to, to an insurer, potentially, because, you know, we're talking about massive losses. That would seem to be sort of, you know, well, you, you know, insurance companies supposedly have lots of money, so let's just have them pay. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, the insurance companies have agreements and contracts, and, we, you know, you bargain for what you get, and uh, it wouldn't seem, you know, appropriate for legislators to step in and say, okay, insurance companies, you pay for this, even though it's not really covered. I guess they can do what they want. I, I question whether that sort of legislation could stand up uh, to scrutiny in the courts. But Yeah, and even if it could, I mean, I'm sure you're talking about a long, a long court battle. To, I mean, nobody, no insurer is going to want to do that, and they're going to implement any sort of mobilized resources to, to make sure that they don't have to ruin their balance sheet. I think the whole insurance industry would back, you know, would get involved in a lawsuit. Just imagine the situations where, you know, hopefully we don't have another pandemic, but there are other events that happen, natural disasters, and if you don't have coverage, well, you, should, you, you, you didn't have coverage, but you should still pay for it. That's just not really not how insurance works, and so it wouldn't make sense to... Mm-hmm have legislature stepping in and say, you still got to pay for it even though they didn't buy it. It's just, it, it wouldn't be a problem to me to the insurance companies. Right, exactly. It's, it's opening up a, a whole different can of worms there. Then there is a really interesting idea that I, I, I don't know if you've heard of this individual, but Zachary Finn, who is a He's a risk management professor at the Davy School of Risk. I think it's the Davy School of Business at Butler University. Uh, and this guy was, uh, he's been a corporate risk manager for Smuckers and, a, and some other in the food and beverage space. His idea is to mobilize TRIA, which is the Terrorism Insurance Act that, that was passed after 9-11. There's been premium going into TRIA for the last nearly 20 years to protect against a terrorism event. Uh, and a lot of 
a lot of businesses have to buy it because of contractual obligations by banks, landlords, and other and, you know and other contractual obligations. We've not had a terrorism, a, an official act of terrorism declared since 9-11. I mean, even the Boston Marathon bombing didn't get TRIA coverage mobilized. Presumably, we have a lot of, uh, you know, capacity within that within that policy that people have been buying for so long. So his idea, and he's been uh, lobbying Congress with, you know, any connections that he has, is to use that as a very methodical method to to reimburse people that have been buying TRIA. I think, I mean, it seems like a pretty innovative approach to at least get some people their money back, especially since it's very systematical. I mean, it's it has policy limits. Uh, it has policyholders. I mean, it, it seems it seems like a, an interesting idea to me. I don't know about you. Yeah, I do too. I think, uh, you know, of the things we've talked about, that one seems to have the most validity. I mean, when you, you hear... Our uh, government officials talking about we have this enemy, this unseen enemy. I mean, it's obviously not a traditional terrorist attack, but it's it's something unexpected. And you know, I mean, it would it would be as close as I could see to uh, triggering that. And and therefore, it also follows you. You've been paying for it, so people have been buying some sort of it, So it wouldn't seem to be. Uh, as as inappropriate as as just sort of forcing uh, insurance companies to step up and pay for things that they didn't cover. Because here you've actually been buying some coverage. If you expand the definition of terrorism to cover something like this, then then it might make sense and would give people some relief. And it's a it's a federal government. You buy it directly from you know you're buying it through the carrier, but it's government reinsured. So I mean, you could just say that that's just using the money that we're already going to spend, you know, through all of this economic stimulus, but it's, it's systematic. I mean, it's systemic. It's, you know, it's, it's a fair system to reimburse people that have already been paying for it. And it sort of answers the, you know, the, some of the pushback to some of the uh, coronavirus-related legislation has been, hey, you know, a lot of people are anti, you know, quote-unquote bailouts. So this, you know, that sort of answers that. It's not really a bailout. It's an insurance reimbursement through the government. So, you know, it, it may be kind of coming out of the same coffers, but at least it's it's got uh, tied to something other than what somebody might just call a bailout. Well, I think at the end of the day, you know, this really shapes the discussion around business continuity plans and making sure you have one. And I don't know how involved you've been with those sorts of discussions in the past. I know that it's always been sort of more conceptual in nature and, you know, it's bigger companies have them. Usually smaller companies don't. I think this this is a good learning experience. And I know that's kind of tongue in cheek a little bit because nobody wants to learn this way. Uh, but, you know, we, we all need to get more prepared for events like this through business continuity. I was actually working at a, at a company uh, well, not at a law firm. I was part of the avian, you know, boat flu task force to sort of what, you know, what are we going to do if, if it, you know, hits like people thought it might, sort of like we're dealing with now. And sort of how, what, what jobs are critical, how are we going to uh, do this at that time, and, you know, networks weren't as broad as they are now. So how are we even going to 
function as a business. So, uh, I mean, this certainly is bringing to to lose uh, the importance of having those sorts of plans and how how do you function in this kind of environment? Absolutely. How do you think, Brad? How do you think this is okay? We're going to get through this, and hopefully sooner rather than later. But how, how is this going to change? the insurance market uh, going forward for things like this? I mean, there are, 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 is there going to be demand for policies that would cover pandemics, or will insurance companies, that, you know, given the credible amount that could be at, at issue, would be too expensive to buy? How do you think this will change things going forward? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I've actually I've been talking to one of my underwriters that in Lloyd's that does a lot of stuff like this, and I know he's getting just inundated with that question. I think it's going to be a scenario where they need where the marketplace probably needs to get their hands or their arms around what the losses look like in the insurable losses in this event that we're having now, and then how do we turn that into a, an opportunity to you know, structure a policy going forward because there's there's definitely opportunity that is going to come out of this in every industry, and the insurance industry is not not unique in that perspective. But there's definitely going to be opportunities in the insurance industry to address uh, address this. I think that will be kind of a you know wait and see sort of scenario. But in general, I think this is going to have a tremendous impact on the market as we've talked about. You know, in the last months and years here, we have a hard, a very hardening marketplace right now. And that was doable up until this point. I mean, people were willing to take the increase because the economy was doing really well. Well, now we have a situation where the economy is presumably not going to be doing well. And uh, we have still a hard market where losses, you know, justify bigger rates. But how are insurance companies going to react to this new normal here? Are, are we going to take a softened approach and just say, we'll cross the claims bridge when we come to it because we need to get income, we need revenue, we need to write policies? Or are they, are they going to dig their heels in and kind of bear down and say, well, we got to get out of this line now, we got to get out of this line, and we just, we just have to make money. I think it's going to be a really interesting question across the insurance category from a high level. I imagine it's just going to have a huge impact on, on how business is done in your uh, insurance world going forward. Well, I think it's going to have a big effect on everybody, but I think there'll be lots of opportunities and I think lots of efficiencies hopefully will come out of this working from home situation where, you know, we're, we're doing things that we never thought that we were able to do, basically. So trying to... Uh, see the silver lining here. I know it's tough, but uh, you know, that's what I think. Well, I think it will be. I think you know we've now been forced to work at home. That it'll be interesting, even you know, from a space issue. Are we going to all have offices? Are we going to? Are people going to convert? And say, hey, we you know we could use less space. We can have people working at home more frequently because you can do it. And occasionally, you need to go in the office, but we don't all have to have dedicated offices. So you can you can office share. You can have those kind of things and, and still function effectively. So I think we're going to learn a lot from this process um, and, and hopefully we get through it sooner rather than later, but I think there will be a lot of lessons that uh, people have learned through, by going through this.
Right, exactly. I mean, you know, maybe it's the catalyst we need. And I say that again, you know, knowing that this is a devastating situation we're in with a lot of sick people and potentially deaths. So, but the catalyst we need to, you know, change the way we function as a society, you know, from anything from, you know, using transportation more efficiently to thinking, maybe thinking a little bit harder about, you know, the environment and everything else. So I, who knows? But uh, good conversation today, John. I appreciate you being on Acts of Pod. We'll keep this going. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we're not all working from home too much longer, but uh, hopefully we can all get out and get a beer here soon, John. Yeah, and I hope everybody who's listening stays safe. It's just scary, uh, dangerous times, and uh, everyone take care. Thanks for listening to Acts of Pod. Again, we appreciate you all tuning in during this you know, very scary time. Make sure to rate us on iTunes. That helps us to get the word out and get more visitors to our podcast review uh, and stream us. Uh, down, you know, uh, go to our website, axopod.com, and make sure you're subscribing to get all the updates. Thanks again. Until next time. <laughs>